Thank you for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. Uh, Pastor Steve here, just always glad to join you in studying God's Word. Uh, you know, the Bible is a big book. In, in the ESV translation that many of us use, the Bible contains over three quarters of a million words. 757,439 words to be exact. So even for those of us who are maybe in the habit of reading the Bible every day, it can take an entire year to read the whole Bible. So we can understand why some of the early Christians in those first few centuries of the church produced the so-called Apostles' Creed uh, as a concise summary of the Christian faith. It's just over 100 words, uh, just under 100 words, I should say, in the Latin originally, and just over 100 words in our English translations. And right at the heart of the Apostles' Creed, we find three words, key words that describe the end of Jesus' earthly life. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Luke 23. Jesus crucified, died, and buried. But while this summary is absolutely spot on, Luke gives us more detail, certainly, than those three words. So we want to take time to give full attention to the last half of Luke, chapter 23, using six headings today, which are carrying and weeping, verses 26 to 31, crucifying and forgiving in verses 32 to 34, scoffing and mocking, verses 35 to 39, fearing and believing, verses 40 to 43, dying and grieving in 44 to 49, and asking and burying, lastly, in, in verses 50 to 56. Now, for context, you'll remember that when we left off last week, Pilate was just releasing Barabbas, the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, who the crowd asked for, but Pilate delivered Jesus, innocent Jesus, over to the Jewish leader's will. And that brings us to our first section where we see carrying and weeping in verses 26 to 31. As the Roman soldiers led Jesus away, they seized a man who was coming in from the country, Simon of Cyrene, and they laid the cross on him to carry it behind Jesus as they marched to his crucifixion. Now, John 19:17 tells us that Jesus started out carrying his own cross, so a likely explanation is that Jesus had been just so weakened by the, the scourging that is recorded in Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 19, that he could no longer carry what was probably a 30 to 40 pound horizontal beam, the patibulum. Uh, they needed someone else to carry it the rest of the way, so the Roman soldiers used their authority to conscript Simon of Cyrene for the job. And while Simon was carrying, Luke alone adds this detail that women were weeping. Jesus was followed by a big multitude of the Jewish people, and that included women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And Jesus turned to the women behind him, and he told these daughters of Jerusalem not to weep for him, but to weep for themselves and their children. Why? Because the days were coming when people would say, Blessed are the barren and, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Now, of course, normally childlessness was seen as a regrettable condition. Uh, we see this with Baron Elizabeth back in Luke 1.25. But the days are coming when people are going to pronounce a blessing on barren Jerusalemite women who never had children. Why? 
because in those coming days between 66 and 70 AD, the Romans would absolutely overrun Jerusalem and people would be so miserable that they would wish for the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them. So if the Romans now crucify an innocent man as a political rebel, Jesus apparently as the green wood in this proverb, what will they do when they crush a truly politically rebellious Jerusalem, apparently the dry wood? You see, like dry wood, Jerusalem was ripe for judgment and destruction. In about 40 years, there would be a Roman siege of Jerusalem so horrible there would actually be a relief for the daughters of Jerusalem, the women not to have to worry about having suffering and dying children. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that some mothers were actually reduced to eating their children during the Roman siege. So don't weep for Jesus as he fulfills his mission. Instead, weep over the coming judgment. And that takes us from caring and weeping to crucifying and forgiving in verses 32 to 34. We learn that Jesus was not the only one in this death march. It was less work, you see, for soldiers to execute several convicts together. So two others who were criminals were also led away to be put to death with Jesus. And that whole entourage came to the place that is called the skull. And the Aramaic word for skull can be transliterated as Golgotha, which in Latin is Calvary. And that's why you hear all these different words used for the place where Jesus was crucified. Golgotha, Calvary, etc. And he's crucified, of course, with the two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Think about that. Jesus, the perfect standard of justice, is grouped with criminals. As Isaiah 53, 12 prophesied, he was numbered with the transgressors. Crucifixion, I think most of us know, was a brutal form of torture and execution. Primarily, it was reserved for the worst of convicts or criminals, and it appears to have originated with the Persians. It got popularized under the rule of Alexander the Great, and then was adopted by the Romans, who would bind people to a wooden post or a tree, either using ropes or nails, and that would lead to death right, through a combination of constrained blood, blood circulation, gradual organ failure, and asphyxiation right, because of such limited inhalation. But Luke and the other gospel writers do not focus on the gory physical details. Instead, they focus on the spiritual significance of Jesus' death. See, while the soldiers who were crucifying Jesus gambled over his clothes that had been stripped from him, fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 18, Jesus prayed for his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus definitely practiced what he preached in loving his enemies who did not grasp that he was the Son of God who had created them. He made intercession for the transgressors, as Isaiah 53:12 says. J.C. Ryle notes that Jesus' own horrible agony did not make him forget others. And he prayed for the souls of his murderers, which was proof of his infinite love for sinners. And also an example to us as well, to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who abuse us, as it says in Luke 6, 28. 
Then, in one of, I think, the sharpest contrasts in all of literature, while Jesus was praying for people to be forgiven, several different groups of people were scoffing and mocking him, as we see in verses 35 to 39. First, there are the Jewish rulers who scoffed at Jesus, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. As Jesus hung on the cross, gasping for breath, the rulers scoffed at his claims to be the Messiah, God's chosen one. Some suggest that this heckling by the Jewish leaders may in some sense have been the final temptation of Christ to save himself and come down from the cross and show him who he was. But we know that it's precisely because he is God's Messiah, God's chosen one, that Jesus continues to accept God the Father's will, and he does not save himself. He stays up on the cross to save others. It's by enduring the shame and suffering of the cross, bearing the sins of many rather than saving himself. That's how Jesus accomplishes his mission of saving those who would believe in him. See, the Jewish rulers assumed, very wrongly, that if Jesus could save himself, he would save himself at once, instantly. So they scoff at Jesus for what they see as his false claim to be God's chosen one. And the Jewish rulers are also joined by the soldiers who who mocked Jesus. They came up, they offered him sour wine, which is the ordinary wine that soldiers drank, perhaps as a way of quenching Jesus' thirst and prolonging his suffering. We don't know for sure. But as they offered him that wine, the soldiers taunted Jesus by saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They ridiculed that unclothed man hanging on the shameful cross. Spurgeon observes that nothing torments a man when in pain more than mockery. And yet this whole scenario appears to be a direct fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm 22, verse 7, that all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And that's not all. One of the criminals who was hanged on the cross next to Jesus also piled on the insult, railing at Jesus by saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Not just yourself, save us from these crosses too, if you are the Christ. What this criminal and the soldiers and the Jewish leaders did not comprehend was that the very words that they used to mock Jesus, he saved others, he's the Christ, God's chosen one, were actually true descriptions of Jesus. He did save others, he is the Christ, he is God's chosen one, it's all true. And so is the charge inscribed over him. This is the king of the Jews. I mean, that was the Romans' supposed political grounds for crucifying Jesus. But it's true that Jesus is the king of all kings. And remember that back in Luke 18, 32 and 33, Jesus told his 12 disciples in great detail that in Jerusalem he'd be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spat upon, flogged, and killed before rising on the third day. That was how he would accomplish all that was written about him by the prophets. So outwardly, it might have appeared that everything was falling apart, but in fact, it was the unfolding of God's eternal plan. And unlike the first criminal, the second criminal got it, as we'll see in our next section, Fearing and Believing, verses 40 to 43.
The second criminal rebuked the first one by saying, do you not fear God? I mean, you're like hours away from meeting your maker, and, and you and I are getting what we deserve. But that man in the middle, he's done nothing wrong. So the second criminal owned up to what he deserved, his own sin. And by contrast, he recognized that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Well, Jesus looked like a convicted convict as he's hanging there on the cross. He was actually a king who was coming into his kingdom, a kingdom that that second criminal absolutely wanted to be part of. So he's the second criminal. He's not focused on being safe from death like the first one. He is focused on being with Jesus in life beyond death. He dared to go against the crowd of mockers and to put his faith in Jesus. This man feared God and he believed in Jesus. Notice how he uses Jesus' personal name, Jesus. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Then Jesus responds in grace, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, those are three great promises. You will be with me in paradise today. <laughs> the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Even while he's being crucified, Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. It's amazing. And, and that takes us from fearing and believing to dying and grieving in verses 44 to 49. Mark 15, 25 tells us the crucifixion began at the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m. And now we're told that during the last three hours of the crucifixion, that's from the sixth to the ninth hour, from noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness over the whole land. The sun's light failed. Seems to be a sign that a cosmic event was taking place, a, a midday miracle that might cause people to think, what's going on? Maybe it caused them to think of Amos 8-9, which prophesied this exact thing. Also, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Some say this was a sign of God's presence leaving the temple. That might be. But others say, and I, I tend to go this direction, with Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, that Jesus' followers can now confidently enter the holy places by his blood, by the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Jesus eliminates the, the separation between believing sinners and a holy God. And we can imagine the priest's reaction, can't we, as they served in that darkened temple and the curtain is torn in two. The way to God's holy presence has been opened by Jesus. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 31.5 in a loud voice, not quietly, but in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. As John 19.30 says, Jesus had completed what he came to do. It is finished. Though Jesus died physically, breathing his last, he committed his human spirit into the Father's hands. Though Jesus' body would be buried in a tomb, his spirit was in the Father's hands, right there with the believing criminal that very day in paradise, which is a, a blissful, Eden-like place where God's people go in the afterlife. And back on earth, when the centurion saw everything that had taken place, think about all the centurion saw. 
Jesus praying for his executioners to be forgiven, Jesus remaining silent when he was mocked, Jesus being declared innocent by that believing thief, Jesus promising the believing thief their togetherness in paradise. Three hours of midday darkness, Jesus committing his spirit into the Father's hands. After seeing all that, the centurion praised God, saying, surely, certainly, this man was innocent. The centurion knew that he had just overseen the crucifixion of an innocent man. Indeed, Jesus was sinless. With the spectacle of Jesus' death over, the crowds that had been watching returned home, beating their breasts. It wasn't the mocking Jewish rulers or the Roman soldiers or the unbelieving criminal, but the rank-and-file Jews who had seen the whole ordeal, they're beating their breasts, perhaps as a sign of grieving or mourning, like the repentant tax collector in the temple back in Luke 18.13. And special note is made here by Luke of Jesus' acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, who, who stood at a distance watching these things. See, those women would very soon play a key role in Jesus' burial and as witnesses of his resurrection. Which brings us to our final section of asking and burying in verses 50 to 56. We're introduced to a man who's really otherwise unknown except for his role in Jesus' burial. Joseph, he's from a Jewish town of Arimathea. He's a member of the council or the Sanhedrin, but as a good and righteous man, he had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision and action to have Jesus killed. He wasn't on board with that. Rather, Joseph of Arimathea was looking for the kingdom of God. Matthew 27:57 provides further detail that Joseph was a rich man. And Luke 19:38 excuse me, John 19.38 tells us that initially Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jews. But now Joseph is a brave, courageous man. He, he's willing to publicly associate with Jesus by going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. And that's a request that Pilate grants. You see, Jews preferred that bodies be taken down on the day of preparation before the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday. So Joseph took Jesus's dead body down from the cross, wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut into stone where no one had yet been laid, thus fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9, which says that God's suffering servant was with a rich man in his death. And lastly, we're told that the women took note of where Jesus's body was laid so they could return after resting on the Sabbath to finish what had been perhaps a, a hurried burial. They would add spices and ointments of their own was their plan. But when they return to the tomb, they are in for a big surprise, right? So stay tuned next week. For now, we leave the story with Jesus crucified, dead, buried. As we close, consider four possible applications from our passage. Number one, don't make the mocker's mistake of not accepting who Jesus truly is. He's God's Christ. He's the chosen one. He's the one who forgives and saves. Number two, do humbly ask King Jesus to include us in his kingdom. What a great prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Thirdly, praise Jesus for committing his spirit into God the Father's hands. 
right? And then going into paradise with the believing criminal that very day. Fourth and finally, like Joseph and like the women, go public as followers of Jesus. Don't, don't be a secret disciple of Jesus out of fear. Go public as Jesus' disciple. Proclaim him and he will own you as his own. I have decided to follow Jesus. At the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. God, our Father, we praise you for loving the world so much that you gave your only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We just stand amazed that Jesus would ask you to forgive those who were crucifying him, that he would endure such unjust mocking without saying a word, that he'd promise a believing criminal life after death in paradise, and that he would commit his spirit into your hands. Love so amazing and so divine, it demands our souls, our life, our all. We pray in the name of Jesus, crucified, dead, and buried. Amen.